Welcome to season three of Been There, Done That, a pandemic survival podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Perez, and in this show, we'll be talking to some real life experts on how to get through this time filled with unexpected changes, challenges, and feelings of helplessness. And those experts are everyday people like you and me. Turns out we may be more prepared for this moment than we realize. So let's get started and see what we can relearn. Right, we are back with uh, Dr. Oda, also sometimes referred to as Meredith. Um, <laughs> it is July 3rd. It is uh, past noon, 2 p.m. or so. Mm-hmm. And gosh, the last time we spoke, it seems like it was, you know, not too long ago, but in the middle of a pandemic, uh, potentially spiraling out of control, economic depression and uh, political uprising, time goes by oh so fast. Um, and sometimes so slow, it's hard to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it's a bit, a bit of both, but so much has happened since we last spoke. Um, mostly outside, uh, of uh, our houses and um i'm actually wondering how would you describe the last month and a half if you had to like i, I want you to imagine you know you're, you're a professor you're a teacher you're an educator i want you to imagine that it's sometime in the future where the students in your classroom at that moment were too young to remember this time right so um you're having to explain to them what, you know, the sort of beginning of the summertime was like, because this began in terms of the pandemic in the winter. So it was somewhat easy to like stay inside and feel the sort of doom and gloom of the moment. Whereas right now it's sunny, it's beautiful. We live by these amazing lakes and, and it's really hard to sort of grapple with the fact that right now, July 3rd, the numbers of contractions on a daily basis and deaths is worse now than it was, you know, uh, six when we actually closed down. months ago. Yes, exactly. And so how would you describe this time differently? Um, can you imagine? Oh, God. I, you know, I'm going to look at my calendars. I don't even remember what six months ago or a month ago looked like. Um, not was, that it, my calendar looks any yeah. different on a day-to-day basis. Well, well, I will say this. I think you and I spoke before we had gone away on our trip to Southern California, which means oh, right. it, okay. was, it, was, it was the later half of May. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's such – oh, God. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Just probably just juncture. It just feels like – Disjuncture, and I don't know. I don't think there would be any one way I could describe it because it's so all over the place. So on the one hand, a month ago, um, that was Memorial Day. Okay, so George Floyd's death was on Memorial Day. So that was over a month ago. And that felt, and it took a while to register, I think, for media, for people, for myself. Um, And then once it did kind of break through, then it kind of changed everything. And all of a sudden it got people out of their houses in a way that we haven't seen. We're starting to see, right, because there's protests against being in your house. So 
on the one hand, we've been told for a very long time, stay in, stay in, stay in. And it was a mark of kind of like this weird conservatism to go out because then you're probably protesting against that. And then, um, then there was protests around policing, um, and anti-black racism. And that felt for a while that felt very different because normally, you know, we would be out and out there like with the protests. Um, and it, it like for, it just felt like, should, should we do it? Which pandemic is worse? It was kind of hard to decide. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then it, you know, then it, at first we were kind of reluctant to do it and then we started to do it a little more. And then with you and Emily and others um, doing more socially distanced um, forms of protest. So there's that going on. And then at the same time, the pandemic. So for a while, like all the top headlines would be around protest and anti-black racism and uprisings. And then and that sort of crowded out the pandemic for, I don't know, right. a good few weeks. And then now the headlines have sort of creeped back up to COVID. Um, and there's that going on. And at the same time, everybody's kind of out and about. And it's hard to reconcile the idea that, in fact, the numbers are worse now than they were in March. In Nevada, much worse. In most of the country, except for the Northeast, much worse. And at the same time, we're still being... Um, you know, told, well, maybe you can go out to bars. Maybe these are, you know, maybe it's okay to go to restaurants. Maybe you can get, start to gather in groups of 50. So there's just a lot of disjuncture with what we're hearing, what we're seeing, what we want to do, what we can do, kind of figuring out what's possible. Right before we saw the news coverage and really started to hear um, in an inescapable way the story about both George Floyd and then shortly after Breonna Taylor we had a couple of things that happened before that um one we had the story of uh, a young man named um uh Ahmed Aubrey um who had been running and not by current police but by former police and yeah. friends was um chased in two trucks and murdered um and the response at that time because we were just barely seeing sunshine and the weather was changing but we were still kind of in a in a late winter moment at that time and the most that we got as a community response was to um on a very particular day to go out running and put on your body somehow a sign that said, you know, hashtag running with a mod, right? But it wasn't like everybody meet up at this place and we're going to run together. It was like, go for a jog, take a picture of yourself with this hashtag and go do it like alone, right? And then before that is when we had, um, you know, individual uh, sections and groupings, albeit small-ish compared to what we've then seen with Black Lives Matter movement and defunding the police momentum. Um, there were these, you know, sort of um, uh, my body, my choice is the phrase that they were using. These uh, now sort of termed um, anti-maskers, right? Who didn't want to shelter in place anymore, who don't want to wear masks. And they were even going as far as blocking access to the hospitals, right? Like, so that was happening, 
before this crisis moment of these two back-to-back stories of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, two African-Americans who are killed um, by police officers, and then these, this mass mobilization begins about Black Lives Matter and defund the police. Do you think, Dr. Oda, as a historian, that there is a rich connection between the Ahmed Aubrey story and the protests by the anti-maskers and anti-shelter-in-place folks that led then to people feeling um, also compelled and ready to join mass mobilizations to defund the police and Black Lives Matter. In other words, if Ahmed Aubrey's death and the militia and anti-maskers coming out and protesting hadn't happened, do you think that what we've been seeing the last month still would have happened. Like, is there a connection there, do you think? Is one responding or building? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, maybe. And it kind of seemed like we had to go backwards a little bit, too, because George Taylor kind of, or, um... You just mixed the both names. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, but you you went with George and Brianna, so George Floyd. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, George Floyd. Um, and then it kind of seemed like we went back in time and then, oh, wait, also Ahmaud Aubrey. Oh, wait, Breonna Taylor. It kind of like we had to kind of, we were at a very different place, clearly, by by the time of George Floyd's death than we were much earlier with Breonna Taylor, where you saw a little bit of it in the news, but it just didn't seem to crack open in the same way, um, or even in the same way that Ahmaud Aubrey did. So mm-hmm. that's a really good question. Maybe that is... Um, connected. I mean, on the one hand, it does seem like, I mean, I just, there's always this, like, especially with those kinds of conservative movements and about when it's about individual freedom and individual liberty, it's a very, they're talking about a very specific individual there, right? And that's not Ahmad Aubrey or other people of color, um, particularly Black people of color. And so, maybe that was in part built out of this kind of resentment against this um, attention that this other movement was getting. Um, And then in response, it isn't kind of funny in some ways because every, you know, there's so much making fun of these people for these conservative actors who are going out and protesting and, you know, not wearing masks at a time when when it, people were still not outside in large numbers, this was very much, and that was like numerically, they're a very tiny minority. Um, yeah, they weren't trying to at the at the time initially. They weren't trying to go to bars. They weren't trying to go out to parks. They were trying to get haircuts. It was like yeah, they, they wanted, wanted to, to go. Haircuts. Yeah, they wanted they to go from to go one, bars. maybe, but but even think about it this way: they wanted mm-hmm. to go from one indoors to a different indoors. It's yeah. not like they were trying to leave their houses. They were just trying to go to other houses to get other services or mm-hmm. to open up their own businesses that were the hair salons or the bars or whatever. But now we're at all bars matter, literally being a chant <laughs> and, and a poster. And we have, you know, um, a bunch of bars and beaches um, in particular and like clubs that mm-hmm. have closed down because we have these stories of like, entire groups of like Texas college students going to Mexico for spring break and 20 of them coming back and like testing positive and infecting yeah. like all these folks or the fact that spring break was completely open in Florida. And, and so basically what's happening now, the sort of like surge and increase is 
has changed a little bit. Before, it was East Coast, New York, Los Angeles, big cities, and um, we were told, don't wear the mask necessarily for yourself. You're doing it to protect others, and you're doing it to protect the most vulnerable, and you're doing it to protect old people. Maybe not the best strategy, because as a whole society and country, we don't really care too much (laughs) about old people or the most vulnerable, because we don't really give an investment and attention and support in that space. So Mm -hmm. then people weren't wearing things, but now what's happening is it isn't just African-Americans. Now it's also Latinx folks, and it isn't just old people. The real, like, transporters and people getting sick and getting hurt right now are actually in their 20s and 30s. So everything that we thought we knew has just almost completely been thrown out the window, and we're back to almost knowing nothing. Because we have stories now of folks who never left their house, always had a mask, didn't socialize, didn't do any of these things, still got sick. Really? I didn't know that. Oh, Oh, yeah. There was a whole family in Arizona where, like, it's a brother and a sister, and they lived in separate houses, and they never even saw each other. And over the last four months, like, seven of their two different respective, like, families have, like, just died. And and you've got people who also Mm -hmm. say, okay, I lived through it. You're absolutely right. I got COVID, and I didn't die. But it also took me a month to be in the hospital. Right. I'm still not better. And now I have a long-term chronic illness. And oh, yeah, the Supreme Court is now reviewing a case to get rid of the Affordable <laughs> Care Act. So, so all these sort of things are, are, are happening at the same time. Um, how have you been feeling about all these things? Like what's, what's going on in, in your home? Because you also finish school. Right. So you have a child and and they finished the school year, um, although word on the street is that she was done with the school year much sooner than when it was officially out. Yes. Uh, just stopped paying attention, stopped wanting to like be a part of it. W- what mm-hmm. was that? What is that like? How did the end of the school year go for first grade? Right. Uh, end of kindergarten. Into end of first kindergarten. Grade now. Yeah, but so this is forget first grade. This is like the first you're at a school mm-hmm. year moment. How did it go? What are you thinking? And what do you hear about what's going to happen next year? Well, the end of the school year, because as you say, she kind of stopped going towards the end, um, as I think a lot of her classmates did. I mean, she was lucky enough. We had stable internet connection. She was there. She had the resources. We could print out all the documents that they gave us, all the school activities. But um, she just got tired of it. She didn't like Zoom. She didn't, um, you know, like the large part of school, especially kindergarten is social. Like they're not, there's not so much content as it is just kind of like getting used to being in school. You're so right. It's line up, stand up, sit down, ask them their name. Don't put that in your mouth. Like write your name. You know, can you read that? Can you share it down? No, no, sit, 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 no, sit. Yeah. Like it's just, it's like, it's just acculturation at this point. And so, you know, like there's no content. She's, well, she was in that immersion program. And so that, that was, I guess, a kind of content or. um, Right. Learning Spanish. Yeah. And so that's gone. But um, so yeah, for us, the difference between school year and summer was not noticeable at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and we kind of, by that point, I think that point it was like three months out. So we had already developed a routine, um, and we were pretty much just, you know, kind of going through the day with our own sort of version of a school schedule, which was mostly just reading a lot, forcing her to do a little reading, a little bit of meltdowns, put in some meal times and snacks, and then a lot of screen time. 
so, um, yeah, so that didn't really make much of a difference by the time school ended. The big thing is, and this is really good timing, yesterday we found out that the Washoe School District plan is to have them back in, elementary school kids back in full time. Oh, well. my yeah. gosh, no. As Not necessarily when. as normal, but, you know, with social distancing in place. But K through fifth grade will be in school that's what they're saying um middle and high will be in hybrid mode so like half the class will go in for half the week half will go in for the rest of the week and so forth so um yeah it's kind of hard to say what what that will will mean on the one hand we're i mean i am so thrilled to think about (laughs) a fall that looks normal Yes. In which yes. she's in school for a good portion of the day. She's out of my hands. She's, you know, she's with other kids. Like all of that is, as I said, I, like school. I, is I, I have to explain my, my laughter. Your <laughs> face, Meredith, like your head went back. There was like a full exhale of breath. And you're like, on the one hand, and I'm just like, uh-huh, uh-huh. It has nothing to do with you at all. Yes. No. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the benefits to having her in school are infinite for all of us. Yes, yes. (laughs) Um, And so on the one hand, yeah, I mean, of course, so, um, I mean, as with all of this, I feel like I go back and forth with everything. I don't know where to stand on anything because everything changes. You have to weigh, like, selfish concerns and societal concerns and so forth. But, um, but it also seems more and more, or more and more experts, I guess, seem to be falling onto the like, we can't eliminate risk, therefore let's figure out a way to live with risk. And among those are like the American, what is it, the American Pediatric Association just came out with a statement about, or guidance in which they kind of like our school district decided or sort of suggest or um, recommend that school districts, schools, teachers, and so forth, proceed with making plans for the fall based on the idea that students should be in school as much as possible, that the benefits of education um, and being in schools, because schools provide so many more services than just education, outweigh the potential risks. Kids don't seem to get as sick. Kids don't seem to pass the, the um, virus on as much as adults. Um, they need less space their bodies seem to react differently to the virus than adults. So that they're saying, and I assume that's what gave the school district cover or perhaps guidance to decide what, you know, what the fall plan will look like. They decided that um, schools, in fact, elementary schools in particular should be in school as much as possible. And for elementary schools, that would mean being in school for the normal length of time. Or actually, they're thinking maybe longer because it's going to take longer to move from one place to another because you have to sort of space out kids and negotiate the hallways and so forth. Um, so, yeah, it kind of looks like she'll be back in school. Although, again, I don't know, you know, who knows? It's a month into the future. So much could change before then. Um, and I think I'm I'm mostly glad, you know, that the, the reporting that's come out about what school has looked or what education has looked like has is that as with everything with, with COVID, it's just exacerbated every inequality that's out there. Mm-hmm. The kids who do the best are the ones with the most resources. The kids that get have gotten the least out of distance learning for whom it's actually been harmful, you know, with the lack of food um, or increased food insecurity or maybe increased domestic or, you know, 
child abuse and so forth, all of that falls yeah. most heavily on, um, you know, low income kids, kids of color than it does on, you know, middle-class stable kids like, like Eleanor who have the resources. Um, you know, we, we can buy her a bunch of workbooks and pens and crafting supplies and so forth. So that, um, and she references it, by the way. So really? yesterday I was, uh, I had the honor to somehow gain Eleanor's absolute attention again, <laughs> which has, it has been years, right? It's been a couple years since um, Eleanor and I were like, you know, buddies, um, especially <laughs> during this pandemic time. Like we've tried to see each other more, but initially we hadn't really seen each other much. And so, you know, and she in all the insecurities that we all had, just like, you know, you kind of regress a little bit to go back to what feels safe and secure. So she was, she was with you and Jared, like a, like a leech, you know, I couldn't yeah. get her to Marnacle. like even say hi, yeah. like nothing. Um, but yesterday, all of a sudden, maybe it was the unicorn inner tube that was purchased. <laughs> Who knows? Am I buying her love and affection? Yes. Am I aware of that? Yes. Is it working? Yes. Because yeah. yesterday she decided to come around and tell me everything about the 50 goddesses in the 50 goddesses book um, that she then referenced over and over again. Um, well, the podcast for homeschool learning. Um, so she, she now cites um, her information uh, where she gets it from, you know, like she was quoting some podcast for, you know, uh, homeschool learning said that this goddess was blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, she's in that, in that first grade, early elementary, like sponge mode where like, if you have a child that watches TV, they can like recite all of the Disney movies word for word, because it's that age where, where kids repeat everything. They watch the same movie like 20 times. It's just in the background. Oh, God. They play the same songs over and over again. They want to read or hear the same books over and over again. Everything's again, again. And, and in some way, it's how they're like totally understanding a story and information. And then they can repeat it back to you. Like she was telling me things. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and she just would not stop. I had like met my match. You know that Felicia can like talk for a very long time. And Eleanor was just going off and I was like, oh, this is what it's like to hang out with me. So, you know, she's, she's super in it, you know, like she's getting it. Whatever you and Jared are doing, she's getting all of it. And so I'm wondering, she must also be getting, quote unquote, the masking and the distancing and, and the washing hands and then like that this is dangerous. Um, and I'm wondering... What can you imagine it's going to be like to go back to school? Like, is she excited to go back to school? Have you even told her? Do you not tell her anything? Because you're not sure what's going to happen. Like, when would you tell her? Would you tell her like the day before? By the way, it's official. You're going back to school tomorrow. And like, wait until the day before. Because what is that disappointment going to be like? Like you're saying, things change all the time. So, so let me back up. Did you tell her? Does she know? We did not tell her yet. Yeah. In part because I think it's still a plan. They're going to talk about the plan on Tuesday, I think. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's when they'll kind of make more decisions. But yeah, again, like there's still four weeks out. Who know? And our numbers are only growing. Maybe that's all going to change by the time. And yeah, the idea of dealing with her disappointment is, 
It's not going to be pretty. Yeah, that's the wrath of one of those goddesses that was not a good one. <laughs> like it's you get hell. Hell is the one I think the goddess of the underworld is who is who you would get if I remember the story correctly. That was the one she didn't really like very much either. Um, <laughs> but but you're you're an educator, so as a professor, you're also being asked, like Eleanor's teachers are, to return to the classroom. Yeah. So while we can feel great, then Eleanor can get some kind of quote unquote normalcy back and, and have some time on her own and with others and with her peers and learning and not under, under, <laughs> under the same house as the rest of you all the time. She's your coworker, your roommate, yeah. your, your child, like the leech, the barnacle, all the things, right? She so- is the worst of all of those things. <laughs> the child, like she is the worst roommate. Okay. Okay, Eleanor, when you hear this, when you're much older, this was said with so much love. I just want to make sure that you hear it uh, in your mother's voice. Okay. Never so, pays rent. All, stop eat all it. The food. <laughs> okay, so, so how do you feel about having to go to work yourself? Because that's then when you get empathy for Eleanor's teachers who are like, yeah. yeah, so glad you're happy about this. But they too, you know, like you as an educator in higher ed and they as teachers, many of them are also family. They have families, mm-hmm. right? So everybody's doing multiple things at once. How do you feel about going back to work in a classroom full of not small elementary students who you could say, do that or I'm calling your mom, but college students who might also be anti-maskers, and as a professor of color, as a woman of color in front of the classroom, you know, we live in a societal world. We're talking about Breonna Taylor, George Floyd. Like, there is racism and misogyny still as pandemics very mm-hmm. alive and well and no vaccine in sight. And so what, what is, what's your worst fear? And what can you anticipate as some of the biggest challenges that you might have in your return to the classroom? I mean, that is one of the things I've been worried about. So one of the things that there's that the administration, the university administration is saying is that, well, um, masking is not required and, um, not you know, required. Ta- it's not required. It's required. It's no, required. It is required. It's required okay. by the governor. Uh-huh. And so mm-hmm. the university is following by that is required. And even before I think the governor had said, we all have to mask. They had, the university had said, we will have masks in all the classroom. Anytime you're outside of your office. Um, and immediately, you know, a lot of, us just assumed, and certainly myself, I, I know my students see me as less of an authority figure than they do um, some of my other colleagues, particularly my white male colleagues. I've had students come into my office from another professor's office hours saying, oh, I just saw Professor Smith in his office hours. So I have a question for you, Mrs. Oda. So, you know, like they just can't, there's always struggles over title. There's just many, many ways in which they signal that they don't see me as the ah, same kind ah, of So I, I, I want to make sure listeners caught that, right? So in your examples, it was, I was just came from Professor So-and-so or Dr. So-and-so's office, but you get referred to as, so Mrs. Oda, mm-hmm. like you're not the doctor, you're not the professor, you're just some, some lady who's also in the room here in yeah. this office. Got it. Okay. Incorrectly titled in addition mm-hmm. to right. us. Uh, disrespectfully so. So, yeah, so I know that they don't see me as, as, as an authority figure. And then in the way in which all this is politicized, I do feel, uh, you know, um, that there is, you know, that there is a kind of, there's definitely a kind of whiteness to the, the, the um, individual liberty, um, don't tread on me 
kind of sentiment that's underlying oh, yeah. a lot of these anti-maskers and certainly a lot of them are Trumpers. And so there's just a latent or uh, explicit racism there too. So Mm-hmm. I do always kind of worry about going into the classroom in general. I always kind of go in there, I think with a little bit of hesitation, knowing that I'm yeah. going to be standing in front of a bunch of kids, some of whom I know see me as less of an authority figure, some of whom might in fact resent me in various ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is just going to, um, you know, this ridiculous politicization of masking will just yeah. become another vector for this kind of tension. And so I assume, so yeah, I've been, I've been worried about it that, that, what is sometimes that latent um, challenge to my authority will become explicit, will become outright as when I tell them, no, you have to wear a mask. No, you have to, um, you know, if you're not going to wear a mask, you're going to have to leave. Um, So. Was uh, that something that you would like put, like, do you put that in writing? Like what's your policy on cell phone use? Oh, you know what? I don't think, I mean, myself, my policy is you can't use it. And if you get calls, you, you, you know, like your phone should be off. Um, I always feel a little weird about that one because in the past I've had occasionally forgotten to turn my own phone off and gotten a call from like my mom or something. Right. Um, But 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 is that something you just say, or is that in your syllabus? You know what? It's not in my syllabus. I've never put it in in part because my sort of stand on technology has shifted over time. So it used to be, you can use it because I don't want to make kids print out readings because I know they can be expensive and it, or, and sometimes it, I kind of want to say, no, you can't use it. Research suggests, in fact, kids who take notes physically retain things better than kids who are just typing everything you say. Um, so yeah, I just haven't really come down with enough of a hard stand on any of that to put it when it comes to masks will you do differently masks will be in your syllabus masks will be in my syllabus and i just i'm not sure that i will in fact um i mean i i will tell people to do it but i i also feel nervous um about making you know about having to then police it yeah you know because it's a matter i mean certainly it's a matter of the students around them and i you know obviously i want to be careful about the students around them and think about the students around them and respect their own, um, you know, fears and concerns. Um, but at the same time, you know, and then Nevada is also a gun state. So that also is part of the fear. Like, so, you know, officially there's no carry on campuses, on campus. but although that was, that was proposed and remember there had to be a fight against that. Constantly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Every year, every time the legislator meet legislature meets, it comes up again and again. Um, so that's always kind of like the drumbeat in the back of any kind of conflict in the classroom is Nevada is a gun state. It's a, it's, it's a pro gun state in a lot of ways. So yeah, there's, there's any number of problems that I just kind of haven't untangled yet and haven't figured out exactly how I'll be addressing it. And I really resent the idea that putting us back in the classroom just opens up all of us, including female faculty, including faculty of color to having to be the kind of, I don't know, you know, um, public health, uh, you know, officer in the situation in which I don't, I I think a lot of us are not equipped or a lot of us are just not well positioned Mm -hmm. to be. Um, As a matter of fact, people raise this to the administration saying like, you know, we're not comfortable with having to for, I mean, we know we, we, we will be wearing masks. That's going to um, compromise our teaching abilities um yeah. and um but we also and we also want to make sure our students are safe so we want to 
to make sure students are wearing masks, but at the same time, none of us feel really comfortable enforcing that in the classroom in the face of potential hostile anti-maskers and, and, and so forth. Um, and the administration came back with this really stupid response of, well, we checked with legal and they say we have the right to enforce masks. So they sidestepped the question entirely with some kind of um, legal response that is entirely but like what's what's but but like how would it work right so they're saying legally we right this is what i always love about like administrative Mm -hmm. um and sort of like top down out of any classroom authority figures right they'll say we but it's not we it's you it's you 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 have the right legally to force somebody to wear a mask but without telling us how that enforcement happens, like it would be great if it was bullet pointed. You have the right as educators to ask people to wear a mask. And if they are not or not wearing it correctly, you then have the right to kick them out of the classroom, right? Like there isn't anything about that. You have the right to enforce it. And how, how does the enforcement happen? You know, yeah, do we call you? Do we call you out of the classroom? Yeah. Since hey, it's so we. Mark Johnson, are you going to come yeah. into my classroom? Yeah, and yeah. since it's we. That's great. Uh, president, can you come into the classroom and deal with this here, right? Like, what are the consequences? And to your point about, like, you know, be, and being an open carry state while you can't have it on campus, that doesn't mean that you can't come back to campus or go to your professor's residence because you're angry and upset. And why not? We're all under the stress of this particular time together. You know, like we've, we've heard about not just K through 12, but higher ed school shootings oh when God, a, yeah. when a disgruntled, having a hard time break, Tech. yeah, break of a student like goes out after either a scorned, you know, romance interest that that went wrong or sour or the professor who like said something that was upsetting, right? Like, so Mm -hmm. this is a really potentially dangerous time. And I'm wondering, let's flip back to Eleanor. As a parent, how do you want a teacher or an educator or someone on a campus in any way, shape or form to talk to your child about her mask wearing? Like, what if she has it below the nose? Does that count as not doing it correctly? What mm-hmm. if she loses it? Will the school provide another one? Um, do you want to be called to say you have to come pick up Eleanor because she refuses to wear the mask? Like, what do you expect on the other side as a parent for the school to do in interacting with your child? I mean, that's the thing, right? Because a lot of this is just... Um kind of hopefulness. So on the one hand, um, actually elementary school kids, they don't necessarily have to wear the mask by middle and <gasps> wait, high school. Wait, 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 what? Yeah, it's, it's optional in part because it's a realization. I think that, I mean, yeah, as you say, like, I don't know, Eleanor's mask kind of constantly falls throughout yeah, the yeah. period of time. Um, and maybe I should adjust the mask, but, um, but also kids, you know, they're gross and they're disgusting, you know, people. And so, <laughs> you know, they're like rubbing their mask. And, yes. I don't know. They're probably like licking toilets and stuff. You, you never know exactly what they're going to do. And, it's, <laughs> and there's only so much I can expect the teacher to actually to do. She's going to have 25, 28 kids in the classroom. Maybe more um, in some yeah. schools. In some schools, absolutely more. In some of the other classes, it's going to be a lot more. And so, you know, there's only so much you can actually expect the, the teacher to do um, with, particularly with these small kids that who are, you know, probably wearing masks is, is worse. I think that was one of the reasons behind um, the Pediatric Association guidelines is that, you know, kids are constantly adjusting it or moving it or, you know, so it kind of out 
the, 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 the benefit you have to wearing a mask is totally lost. Um, and they have, um, they don't, you know, like their outtake of breath is, is shallower than an adult's is. And again, because they seem to carry the virus and transmit the virus differently. Um, I think that was part of the, the, the reasoning behind it, but it, at any rate, yeah, I mean, there is only so much I can expect, just as I would assume my students' parents would realize right. that there's only so much that I can do to ensure their children's safety, um, and only so much I can really be expected to do, given that some of the decision-making, a lot of the decision-making at this point is out of my hands. I also, you know, it is kind of scary to think that, like, there's only so much that those parents, I mean, those teachers can, can yeah. do too, particularly when they are young and they they don't really listen and they're not doing that because they have a ideological standpoint like anti-maskers, but they, you know, they're, they're six and they're now yeah. thinking about dinosaurs. So it's, yeah, I mean, so much of this is just a matter, I mean, right. And this is, this is kind of society wide. So much of it is just is depending on others to wear masks, to not breathe yeah. in each other's faces at bars. Right. All of this just depends on, I don't know, you know, hoping, expecting, but mostly hoping that your fellow people are, are taking the same precautions. Yeah. I mean, what's fascinating to me is when this all began, the very first set of individuals or groups that got a economic, um, you know, subsidy, if you will, or had economic uh, socialism uh, enacted were uh, transportation. So cruise lines and um, airlines all got these financial bailouts mm -hmm. so that they could, quote, stay afloat so that when this is over, whenever that is, we have ways and means of transportation um, after the fact, right? So bail out the airlines, bail out the cruise industry, keep them afloat, and yet that same kind of support hasn't happened in education so that there's schools and learning yeah. and things like that to return to. No, it's just go, 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 risk what you need to risk. And I know from different universities, including the one here, UNR, you know, initially some of the, the first response, and even now when people are denied particular accommodations, the response is, well, take a leave. Take a leave of yeah. absence. Take time An off. leave. Yeah, yeah, exa exactly. An unpaid, non-subsidized. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if you just started, you've got none of that. If you're the just lock. coming in and starting, mm. you've got none of that. So essentially at this moment, we're asking many Americans and people who are just residents living here, right? You don't have to be a citizen. We're asking people who are currently living in the United States, make a decision and, and really think about the, the risks and gains of this moment. Can you afford, quote unquote, to not work right now? And if you can't, well, I guess you're going to have to risk dying. So it's a matter of like, which one's important? Where are we at? The slow death or the fast mm -hmm. death? You know, like and it's, <laughs> it's, it seems incredibly like surreal. Um, and so I guess my next question for you is, let's say you get to be the decider. You're the administration of the entire, you know, Washoe County School District, and you're the president of UNR. If you could say, this is what I would like to do, and everyone would just like move in your direction and do what you wanted them to do, what is your solution to this moment? How could we keep ourselves safe, 
keep ourselves financially afloat and have what we need and also not lose our minds or our ability to learn because I don't necessarily see your daughter as getting behind. Like you said, though, yeah, she's going to be fine. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of things that she does have access to that others may not, but they're learning things too. So I, I'm wondering, what would be your ultimate solution? You know, I think we have to go higher up than this, right? Because if we sort of focus on the institution, there's still going to be, you're still going to like run up against problems of, of funding. As a matter of fact, I was talk, we were talking about this. I was talking about this to my um, significant other, my boyfriend, and um I well, mean, now, which one is he? Your partner, your significant other, or your boyfriend? All of them. Got it. He Go changes. Ahead. Yeah. Okay. It depends. <laughs> depends on my mood. Yeah, yeah. Your mood has changed. He's now just your boyfriend. Earlier, he was your yeah. partner. I love it. Okay, keep going. He didn't do the dishes this morning, so I'm not... Your roommate. Not, uh-huh. Yeah. So the other adult who lives with you. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, uh, my roommate, yeah. Um, well, because we were talking about this because... Um, I can't remember what it was, you know, some of the things that we're, we're, you know, thinking that you would need to do for like, say, K through 12, mm-hmm. or for college would require a significant amount of funds, right? Mm-hmm. Um, neither of which public education um, at either the K through 12 or the co- college level, it, they, it all requires a lot of funding. Um, you know, if you want to adequately space these kids, it would be even better if you could have them in classrooms of like 10 as opposed to 30. But for that, you would need to hire those two more teachers and ideally yep. maybe another eight or two per mm-hmm. teacher so that they could adequately oversee both the um sort of sanitation, I guess, as well as the education. Um, And then all the other behavioral things that, you know, an elementary school, even a high school kid needs. Um, And same thing for for college. If you're going to do this um, college uh, education in either some kind of hybrid form or online form, you would need a lot more resources than um, the administration really even has to juggle and reallocate, right? And so, you know, Jared and I were just talking about how, or I was really pissed because, you know, if you think about it, so this is the second time the airlines have gotten a kind of bailout in the last two mm-hmm. decades, right? It was after mm-hmm. the, it was after 9-11. And actually, did they get one during the 2008 recession? And they then again, might have. Now, yeah. So they've actually gotten bailouts three times. Universities have it, right? In all of that time, we've lost public, we've lost public funding at the state level since, you know, most, all of this is done at the state level. We've lost public, we've lost funding for that. Property taxes and a lot of, and after each of these downturns has also gone down. Um, And, you know, in Washoe County, we pay so little, there's not that much to work with anyway. Um, And so in all the, you know, like none of the, the, the resources that I think you would actually really need to do any of this responsibly are just, are just not there. And so, I mean, as much as I'm pissed about some of the decisions that have been happening, particularly at the university administration, um, you know, I also kind of realize that there's just only so much they can do, given the fact that we have, we've been starved for funding for so long. We just can't make the right decisions. I think we're pushed into these corners where unless you're Harvard or Princeton and you're sitting on endowments that, you know, are the size of small countries, GDPs, we just can't you know, we can't do what we, we can't, we're not, we can't afford to do what, what we need to do. And so as a result, the university, the administrators are forced to, to juggle safety with, you know, squeezing students for every last fee or residential um, um, 
I don't know, fee or tuition or whatever it is that they, they can yeah. get out of students. Yeah. Um, not to say that they are doing well in the given, with the given conditions they have, but, you know, at the same time, um, it would need, I think, a lot more funding to do any of this well. So to answer my question, <laughs> what you're saying is you would have, if, if it was your way, you would see that there's benefits to people working, that there's benefits to people getting back to ben, uh, some sort of normalcy, education, all of that, being in community, socialization. And so the solution is, if that is so important, if education and working and socializing and creating a, some kind of consistent normalcy is so important, then let's put our money where our values are and let's just pump so much money into public education that it can do whatever it needs to do. Because right now things seem so dangerous because there's scarcity and that mm -hmm. scarcity and that danger exists because public schools K through 12 and higher ed have been defunded for decades, for decades, mm -hmm. because what a public school can do is limited by that funding and what a private school can do is not limited by that. And so they can make different things happen and mm -hmm. transpire, right? And so when we talk about defunding the police, it is for this exact thing. Like you have more money than you actually need to cause care, to create care. Instead, you have all this money and all it's doing is financially paying for harm. We're, we're over here is where we actually need it right now, you mm -hmm. know? And, and what's so interesting is that I, I don't think that we would even be discussing, should we go back to school? Should we go back to work? If we did have an abundance of financial resources to make it happen safely, so there's like this connection between having an abundance of resources and safety and the scarcity of resources and then being in, in a lot of danger. And we saw that, right, when we didn't have PPE, when we didn't have enough personal protective equipment, when we didn't have enough masks, when uh, doctors and nurses were putting on trash cans instead of gowns, yeah. right? Like the idea of scarcity and danger versus abundance and safety, right? Mm -hmm. And so even now, as our state and several other states are mandating mask wearing, did you notice that all of a sudden all those masks appeared that weren't available a few months ago and now they're free? So now instead yeah. of you and I having to make, buy, you know, creatively create masks, we could go to any of the local coffee shops and there are all the paper yeah, masks they're handing them for out. free. Yeah. yeah. And there's the hand sanitizer that we couldn't find for months, right? So it's like it's convenient that it's free now when it wasn't before, but it's only free if you go inside the business. It's like the Pied Piper, right? It's like, oh, you want these things? Oh, well, yeah, well, we want you to buy things too. Come and get it over here. Here's the airplane, here's the hangar. And so it's just, I was having a conversation with a friend who um, got arrested here uh, during oh. the, the protests um, here in Reno initially when all of a sudden the tanks came out in the riot gear, he gets arrested 
um, for four days, he asks to make a phone call for four days. They don't let him make a phone call. They don't even oh allow him to have a lawyer. His uh, roommate uh, just kept looking, refresh, refresh to see if he was at a hospital or in jail to find out where he was to oh, bail him Jesus out. Uh-huh. And as he and I were talking, you know, we're having this conversation and he says, you know, I just don't understand why the police are okay with this. And he said, you know, I, the reason I got arrested is I kept going and talking to the police and saying, you don't have to do this. Why are you here? You don't, you don't have to do this. You could go home. Don't you want to have a beer and just relax at home? You're not de-escalating the situation. You're escalating the situation. Right. And he's like, I just think that a lot of these cops don't want to be confronting protesters or putting themselves in harm. Um, And if we just communicated with them in that way. And I said, are you kidding me? They're getting overtime. They're getting extra pay. It's called hazard pay. And so for the police to spend extra time out and to do these extra, you know, above and beyond things, it's extra money for them. Mm-hmm. Dr. Oda, when you go back to campus, are you going to get hazard pay? <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll be getting time and a half um, and all the PPE that we need. No, no, of course not. And so this is all a matter. I mean, as you're saying, and I think this is exactly what you're saying, like, it's not that we don't have the resources. It's how we choose to allocate them, right? It's how mm-hmm. we've decided to allocate them. And so if you look at the city level, like in Reno, um, over a third of city budget goes to policing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, and our schools, you know, are starved. They, they need our, our, they've been, they've been needing to build more school facilities for a mm-hmm. long time. Mm-hmm. Our teachers are overstretched. Um, there's dramatically underpaid. Dramatically underpaid. The per pupil, the per pupil spending, we are in the last, we're in the bottom five. We were 49 out of 50 states at one point. I think we moved up maybe one or two spots. So we're the least funded per pupil. And we have some of the, the poorest and lowest paid educators in the country. The only ones paid lower than here are in like Kentucky, Mississippi, and Alabama. And they went on strike recently, right? Yeah. So, so yes, we, we, we have the funding in the country. It's just not being allocated to the mm-hmm. places of biggest need right now. Military budget, they never have to worry about budget. Policing, they never have to worry about, you know, somehow not getting enough of what they need financially. Um, so there is... Um, there is one last question here for, for this season, um, you know, and, and I hate to, to end us on, on this note, you know, I, I am going to keep talking to you and others from this podcast, but I'm going to let like a kite, a lot of string go to see what really happens over the next few months um, as this an, an anticipation that people are going to go back to school and back to work. And then we'll be right again in a winter and we'll have holidays. And what are the holidays going to be like differently? What is Halloween going to be like? What is, what is Thanksgiving and Christmas going to be like? So we're going to give some time before we talk to you again, but just to sort of try and cap what we have so far. Are you reading or consuming any popular culture right now? Are you reading a book? Are you um, watching television shows or movies? Are you listening to music? What What is your main consumption been during this time other than children's books? 
actually, can I just, before we go on to this part, can I just yeah. follow up with the point that you were Please. saying earlier? Yes. Because I think when we were talking about real reallocation, um, I mean, this is fundamentally a tension of, as you say, not putting money where your values are, not putting money at least where you say your values are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is what's creating all of this, you know, like I wouldn't be so excited to send my daughter back to school if I had a choice of not having to say work to, to juggle and be in the classroom with a bunch of 18 to 22 year olds who, you know, are biologically at a time in their life when they just don't make the decisions that they might make with another 10, 15 years of maturity. Right. 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 Um, or, you know, for everybody else who's having to send their children back, like the reason, part of the reason that it's in such, um, that it becomes such a high stakes decision is because again, like we don't have, because you send your children to school in part because it's childcare. Um, but you need that, right. Because, um, you can't pay for childcare otherwise. And also Mm. like it probably wouldn't be safe to at this point. I mean, at the same time you need to work in order to do any of that. You need to be able to send your kids to school to be able to work and you need to be able to um, have that kind of childcare in order to do that. And all of this is just simply because we have chosen not to support people, all people and not being able to work when they, they shouldn't be working. Right. And so we have, you know, you and I, we have friends who are from Canada and Mm. where, Canada, the government is still giving $2,000 checks to anybody who can't work or who can't work from home, right? In order to support people, to ensure that people don't have to make the decision between, well, like, should I work? Um, Because if I don't work, I, you know, should I work in the face of danger because I can't afford not to work? You know, right? The reason that we're making all of these decisions is simply because that's, these are the decisions that we have. Just like administration is working in sort of an paucity of choices, um, we all, too, as individuals, are still working in that paucity of choices because, you know, what is probably safest for us just to stay home um, or social distance um, to the extent that we can safely um, is just is not is not an option for us, as it has been for other countries that have chosen to, you know, um, support their people to do what they we all know is safe. Um, and provide them the resources to be able to do that. And all of those countries, right, are doing far, far better than, than we are in terms of COVID rates and COVID deaths. Um, and so really, it's just, it, this, it all does come down to this matter of the allocation of resources and where we choose to put it and the kinds of things that we really just want to, um, to support or sort of see in our society um, and those things, those things, whether it's a university, whether it's K through twelve education, um, it you know those things need, or it's policing, or it's putting the the money from policing into public education or something, um, because all of these institutions too are going to be stretched a little further. Like first grade, first grade teacher, she is already she already has enough on her plate. She's already reporting child abuse cases that she sees. She's already making sure mm. kids who look like they're not eating enough can get the free meals programs, right? She's already trying to deal with behavior for kids who might be coming out of unsafe um, homes or living situations, right? She already has like a number of other things that she has to deal with. And now she also has to think about the fact you know, she also has to think about keeping kids apart or making sure they're wearing masks or making sure they're acting a certain way or, you know, walking a certain way in, in hallways. Um, you know, and so she's already t- 
has too many responsibilities outside of just educating children. And now she has one more. And so that's like essentially a, a pay cut that she's taking because she has more to do and she's getting the same amount of money. As a matter of fact, she's getting less, right? Because we're all being furloughed. All state employees are being furloughed. Right, 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 right. Meredith, in the middle of these decisions that administrators are making to force people back into work or quit their jobs or go into financial scarcity themselves for taking their lives and putting it, you know, before profits or before bringing, being able to, to have an income, right? There's also the fact that y'all are being asked myself, I guess, included as educators Mm -hmm. to get less money for more work and to do so and to say yes, because that is the way that we are showing that we are all in this together. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Because this is all a very false scarcity because Mm -hmm. for some, in some institutions, for some people, for some occupations, there is not the scarcity. You know, I don't know that the police, I mean, and the police too are taking on far more. And so if you defund them a little bit and send some of that those resources to say K through 12 schools or after school programming or recreational facilities or social workers like that takes I mean part of that is just like taking some of the work off of the police police's plates who are not trained to do that and are in fact trained to do things that actually act sort of in opposition to to that kind of work and put it on the plates of people who are trained and capable and um positioned to do that kind of work. And so it's, it's, it's not that there is this scarcity. It's very much this false scarcity um, in which we are grappling with these kinds of decisions that may in fact be life-threatening because, um, because of the way that the resources, which could be adequate, are being allocated. In other words, people are getting sick and dying right now, not because of their choices, but because of choices that were made from the top of the top, either Mm -hmm. their bosses or their governor or their mayor or the president, right? Like it goes all the way to the top that what we are dealing with right now is somebody's deliberate, intentional, and strategic choice. This is not an accident, Mm -hmm. right? Maybe the pandemic, maybe, um, but people also have through lines, you know, talking about climate change and how we got to this pandemic. But let's take that out of the equation for a moment and, and not say, yeah, that's also a bunch of choices that we've made. But, or maybe we do add it. The point is, we got to this place of a pandemic and all of the ways in which it is, you know, um, taking its toll on us individually and as a community and sometimes life-threatening all because of someone else's choice and the blame is being put on us as individuals that well we have choices to make too but to your point it is a false choice right so it always goes back on the people who just have to follow the orders that it was their fault that they did or didn't follow them Right. And so in these moments of, well, yeah, everybody has to wear a mask. Who's enforcing it? Well, the people who are closest to the people who are or aren't wearing the masks. Right. And so it becomes this like really intense moment of having to really question not what you're being told, but 
what is behind what you're being told? Is that the only option that there is? So we've had in this administration this call for and this push against, you know, uh, fake news and alternative facts, right? And you can't believe anything. And what is the truth? And I think what's so wonderful about this conversation that you and I are having is, yeah, there might be many truths, Yes, the truth might look differently to other people based on your perspective, but let's actually talk about real, real facts, which is that any of these truths are only there because somebody and individuals with power are making strategic choices where that choice puts profits above people where community is less and what's more important is the individual choice because you named Canada. We could go to like many countries in the EU and you know, they're taking care of their people because the people matter more than the profits, but we are die hard in the United States, quote unquote capitalists, right? So of course profit is going to drive everything over people. But we're also socialists when it comes to these programs to actually harm people, right? I was talking about Mm -hmm. the socialist program of the military, of bailing out these big corporations and companies and whatnot. And I guess a big question that I have for you is, you mentioned earlier that students in your classroom who are young adults could benefit from a few more years before they could really make maybe better decisions. What's behind that? What's that about? There's, There's some research behind this? Wait, I missed my phone dot or my phone cut out and I missed. No problem. You mentioned earlier that the students in your classroom could benefit a few years um, so that they could really make more sound choices um, about what they want to do with their lives, right? Wear a mask, not wear a mask. Is there something about that? Like there's more cognitive development once you get to a particular age? Yeah, I just was reading something. I think um, there's some op-ed or something written by a behavioral scientist, maybe, or a psychologist, and that their brains just aren't as developed, right, at that age. Um, as a matter of fact, they're kind of... What's the, the gap? What's the time? Is, but the sort of neurological uh, physiology is, is suggested. The frontal lobe. Is, yeah, whatever it is. Um, it is like in the teenage years through early 20s. So, so when smack you, dab high school, college. Right. So when you compare the United States to any of these EU countries or other countries around the world, we're kind of between that high school and college age <laughs> as a country. Like we don't have life experiences as a country in the United States where a massive world war happened and destroyed our entire country and we had to rebuild. We don't have the history as a country in the United States like really having to come together as a whole country, except for these two moments when we really didn't come together as a country. We came together as two different sides and started attacking one another. And that would be September 11th and December 6th, 1941, right? So I think that these moments when we are attacked, we start attacking each other and we just haven't developed our frontal lobe enough to consider the whole instead of just the individual. And this is that moment in the US where like all the things are getting exposed, all the phrase, like all the little strings on the edge of the towel are here. And if you just pull on one, you find all the things, which is, oh, this has been all about money all along, (laughs) right? And the whole towel just comes apart because it was all about money. And we just kept pulling that string so back to my final question. Or, let me, <laughs> <laughs> I 
Um, or it's like what we haven't been through. I think it's also what we have been through. Um, and I think we could also find on that same thread, it's all about money, but it's, and kind of as, res- or maybe the two are twined up or as a lot of historians say, because it's all been about money, we have, you know, um, ideas of race that came out of it. Like our ideas of race come out of slavery, right? And so I think it's as much what we haven't been through in terms of that sort of national unity, because there's other been other points where we might've looked to it, um, but it's what we have been through, which is the experience of slavery, the experience of being, of, um, of having that constant sort of division mm. um, that cuts across class, that cuts across economic interests, that always allows you as say a poor white person to feel like, well, I don't own any property. Um, I can't, I don't have the vote, but you know what? I'm better than that slave. And so there was always kind of a way to get other forms of unity, right? Because certainly sort of there's been a, a white identity that has been extremely unified, right? And that we continue to see to this day um, that has always been formed with the idea of being not black or maybe which has always been kind of the touchstone, I think. And it's been nuanced over the years of being not yellow or not red or not yet brown, right? And so there's always been kind of this, this way in which no matter how little you have, you still have more than, you know, what has been defined as kind of the absence of rights, which would be slavery um, through Reconstruction, through Jim Crow, um, you know, up until the present in a lot of ways, right? That there's always ways in which um, you are getting some kind of benefit, even if it's not economic, enough to buy into, to support, you know, these clearly, like glaringly inequitable social systems, socially economic systems. And so I think in a lot of ways that too is kind of, you know, like uh, all the ways in which we've come up against, but never quite done a a full welfare state or a Mm -hmm. full kind of socialized medicine Mm -hmm. or a full social, social safety net, right? All of these things have been hindered in part because people have been able to say like, well, um, but you know, we don't want our money to go to, we don't want our money to go to those people, right? Even though throughout the history of welfare, poor white people have gotten far more welfare than people of color. That has been the case from the start of the New Deal through the present day, right? Still, nonetheless, it's been kind of racialized as as black or brown, mm-hmm. even though mm-hmm. that has defied the actual um, implementation of these policies uh, in, intentionally, right? Intentionally keeping out black or brown recipients, but still kind of coloring these institutions in that way in order to kind of systematically defund it, right? Systematically um, cut out the supports of it. Um, and so, you know, what we have been through, right? That experience of slavery, that experience of anti-Black racism has been sort of consistent enough, I think, to kind of make sure that that kind of unity, that sort of national unity that is necessary is to, to get through this, to get through, um, you know, police murders, all of this is, is, is hindered by the fact that we've, you know, there's, there's been this kind of constant trip, this kind of constant barrier to being able to see ourselves as sort of fully with all the same interests, with all the same um, stakes. I mean, yes, clearly it, it is, 
it is goes back to the frontal lobe not fully developing. Like we only yeah. know what we know, you know, we only know what um, we haven't been through, you know, is informing things. And what we have been through is informing these things, right? And so what we have an abundance of lessons on is individuality. We have an abundance of lessons on inhumanity. We have an abundance of lessons on scarcity and that the only way you get out of scarcity is by stepping on other people who have more scarcity than you just so that you can see, uh, just so that you can say, I'm not like them, right? And if you had more of a community-based socialist, if you will, it's not about them. It's about us. Right. And so I, w- I was asking someone the other day, actually, it was my niece. I said, um, so why do you care about anything Black Lives Matter? This is my niece who's half Mexican and half white. And she goes, because look at our family. Our family has family members who are black. And I was like, OK, is George Floyd in your family? And it like stumped her for a minute. Right. And eventually she comes around to, well, in a sense, yes. And I think that that is, that is part of what's happening here, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, that, that is such an American story that there's me and then there's you. There's us and then there's them. And even though the United States is acronym and is often just the U.S., the U.S. or the U.S. of A, us is in the acronym <laughs> of the U.S. of A, but there is no us. It's always been an us versus them. There is no collective us, you know, and, and that is our, our biggest, our biggest downfall, because at the one hand, if there wasn't us, it's not about not wanting the airlines to be bailed out, bail them out. It's not about us not wanting to have people who need overtime for their work to not have access to overtime. Mm-hmm. It's not about less. It's about more for everyone. And yeah, that gets exactly. to the, that gets also to the false narrative that, well, you think we just have a bunch of money for everyone? It's like, well, if you made it so, yeah, you could. And, and so there I are guess, plenty of places we could get money. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, I guess part of, of, you know, this sort of like conversation as well is just how much more we have to grow up as a country and and as also individuals in this time because we're talking about your child growing up from the first grade moving forward we're talking about college students right now still developing and i wonder what it is that we're actually teaching them i'm fascinated and i and i hope i get to live long enough to figure out and learn what is eleanor learning about this time Mm -hmm. is she going to grow up and be like alex p keaton resentful of all the community things she had to do and now she's free to go back to individualism like uber Mm -hmm. because what we've been talking about right now is like radical capitalism Radical capitalism, where, where the community is the enemy because it's radical capitalism. So what's the response in that moment? Like, honestly, is Eleanor going to grow up resenting community because finally I got to be free? Or is she going to grow up and be like, when I was a kid, we had to go through all these things because the adults then were making dumbass choices. And we're going to make it better because we get the brunt of everything that they did wrong. Who wants to clean up that mess? Like, what, do you th- what do you think is, is going to happen in the future? How are people going to see this time? A lesson or 
is it a lesson where like, God, I'm sure glad that we went through that because I have that lesson now. Or is it the like punishment lesson? Like it taught us a lesson or you know what I mean? Like you could see it either mm-hmm. way. I know. And it kind of depends on where we go, right? Like it seems like this would be the prime time to realize, oh shit, universal healthcare would be really good at this time, right? It would be excellent to make sure that the person with a cough down the street thinks, oh, I should go to the doctor and get this taken care of and maybe stay home um, and can afford to go to the doctor and can afford to stay home. Stay right? home it would be right. excellent if we, lo- if we learned those lessons, if we realized, oh yeah, it's paid sick leave is actually necessary. It's socially necessary or universal healthcare, you know, necessary for all of us. Um, so, I mean, if this, this, if I like, when else would, would we learn that? Right. Um, if, if not from something like this, Maybe if we moved to Canada, we would maybe learn that lesson. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, so on the one hand, this is, this is, if we, we could come out of this, right, with a stronger healthcare system, with a stronger social safety net. Um, Because I think people are kind of realizing, oh shit, education, you know, our K through 12 public education system is not just about educating our kids. It's about feeding them. It's about ensuring Mm -hmm. some degree of social equity. It's about, Mm -hmm. you know, watching out for public safety um mm-hmm. you know it's it's simply just realizing how much a teacher has to do when we have to educate our own children you know by ourselves okay um, last question before i get to the question of the season because i just remembered that i wanted to ask you about this this is my own personal conspiracy theory you mentioned something earlier in the interview where you said it was COVID, right? And then, yeah, Ahmed Omri, and then George Floyd, and then Breonna Taylor, and then these others, you know, have come up from, you know, previous incidents that happened before COVID and we're just getting the video now, or people are reinvestigating, want calling attention back to a previous murder um, because it seemed fishy then, and maybe now we could get momentum to actually find out more about it, right? Like all these kinds of things are happening. And that made the attention of COVID go away, which is like the thing that makes Trump look the worst. All of these people died on my watch. So it's Trump's choice and the current administration's choice and other Republicans in his party's choice to open things back up, to um, also call in the National Guard, call in more police, and, and really push these sort of um, waves of protests, right? So just like you said, the attention went away from the people that have died on my watch and it instead went to the people who were responsible for getting themselves sick and law and order. And now it's back to COVID and we're four months before the presidency um, and the election. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is, do you think the National Guard and the police were more heavily pushed out into the streets so that the news story would be police and law and order instead of COVID. Is it possible that that was by design? Um, I, to the point that his reptilian brain or like the <laughs> collective reptilian brain of him and his administration work. I mean, I think that could very well be, right? Because all of this has been again, you can no longer use dog whistle. It's just a bullhorn of racism, right? All of this, it shares the sort of commonality of um, being able to, uh, I don't know, again, sort of like gesture towards or just speak directly towards white supremacists um, and sort of, you know, raise all of those racial tensions and racial fears that he uses to um, signal to and sort of 
make connections with his his base um right and so um i mean why the hell did he go out there with the bible like it doesn't make any sense other than to make sure that there was a narrative about the police and the protesters and law and order and for a month now it we haven't heard anything about covid yeah, I know his, 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 his um, what is it? His group has disappeared. We heard from them. What was it the other day? Oh, oh the yeah, oh yeah. You mean the you, you mean the, the vice president Pence? Um, you know, committee <laughs> yeah. to like get us right. Yeah, no, none of that is happening anymore. And so it's like, oh, I see what just happened. You didn't want us to keep talking about the people dying on your watch. So you went back to law and order and and racial, you know, keep the the brown people and their white race traitors, you know, quiet. And then, oh, damn, they're back with the COVID. God darn it. You know, like that really riled up his base of Mm 6,000. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know what I mean? So like something is, something is happening here. There, there is something here where, I really hope that we are able to at least try and start to turn the boat um, uh, in in November. Granted, our captain is is very old um, and and senile, and it's going to take all of us really helping to yeah, turn the just boat. Keeping him on track, just keeping him on track. It's going to be about keeping. But you him know on what track. it reminds me of? It reminds me of. Do you remember that representative that we had who had blonde hair? And he was the bane of our existence. And he was best friends with Trump. And his first name was Dean. <laughs> oh, Mr. Heller. <laughs> yes. And, and we no longer have Dean Heller causing harm. We have Jackie Rosen who enters Sound of Crickets. Right? You know, like, so, so nothing is happening, right? But at least there's no harm. Yeah. Potentially. You know, she's just not quite there. Um, and so I, I, that's how I'm starting to see the Biden-Trump campaign, you know. And so um, who do you want for vice president? Oh, God, I don't know. I'm assuming it's going to be Kamala Harris. But um, just because she obviously checks so many boxes for Biden, not only is she a black and Asian woman, she is a former prosecutor um, and so can mollify any of his kind of right-leaning flank. Um, but who I would really want, I don't know. I just, I'm kind of working on the assumption that it's, that it's going to be her. And it's, it is going to take like all of us keeping that, that, that boat, that ship sailing in the right direction. Yeah. I have a question for you. As Biden is much older, should he pick Kamala to be the vice president? It, most likely in that first year of the or that first administration time of those first four years, um, he will probably pass or step down, and then Kamala will be the president. Did you? Do you think, not did you, let's not assume that it's going to be Kamala. Do you think that in your lifetime, you're going to see the first Asian American president of the United States? I mean, it's possible, I guess, if Biden chooses her and if he dies or if he becomes incapacitated. Um, I mean, I like literally that hasn't even crossed my mind. I was, I was excited about her at the very beginning. Um, Mm -hmm. 
and then kind of as you learn more and more and then as you see what kind of a train yeah, wreck you're, you're like oh the gosh yeah. like oh maybe not the best <laughs> um oh it could also be tammy duckworth is she on the list i i've been hearing more and more about her um, get in recent out. days get she's from the Midwest. She, um, she's a vet a, she's a veteran she's asian american um she's so she's, she's in my she's in she's in my crip community she's yeah got, she's like stable. oh my god totally. wow oh see now now you just made me more happy about the possibility of the first asian american president if it's going to be duckworth okay all right so okay thank you for that thank you for that is there anything else you want to say meredith because every time i try and get to the end of this interview you're like you know what i go back to something and I, and I appreciate that as a historian I love that you always want to go back to something that's where we go that um are you ready okay go okay let's say it's a children's book because let's be honest that's really what you've been reading so it's a children's book for children maybe it's for whole families considering that many adults are often the readers or the person being read to in children's books and it is about you and your family. Maybe it centers your child. Maybe it centers you as the parent um, along with Jared. I'm not sure. But let's say it's a children's book. Could be YA. Could be young adult. Uh, we can go older. And it's about this time in all the things that are happening in this time of the pandemic. So it's inclusive of all the things. Um, what would the name of the book be? And what would be on the cover giving you an idea of what the story or stories are going to be about. You know what immediately popped into my head is it can be better. Like it doesn't have a semicolon. It doesn't have to be this way. Cause I think one of the stories that has come out in this or one of the, maybe this is just me grasping at straws, but it does seem like right from one of the things I was totally shocked by is how the, is the way in which the idea of defunding the police has, has, is not fringe. Um, I mean, certainly the sort of establishment Democratic Party, Biden is going to say, no, that's crazy. I have nothing to do with that. But in practice, I mean, it seems perfectly possible that a lot of cities are going to take steps, possibly even Reno, if we continue to put pressure on them, to in fact go in that direction. I mean, defund the police um, has a myriad of meanings, but among them is simply reallocating some of those resources, um, maybe taking away the ways in which it is in fact over-resourced, mm -hmm. the police departments are over-resourced and moving them into other, into other places, right, that could use it, that in fact could do some of the things that we're expecting the police to do, but do it in a better way, like social welfare services, like recreational or community or youth programs, like education um, and I have been shocked, like dumbfounded by the way in which that has, that has gained traction, right? New yeah. York, LA, they're talking about severely cutting back their police departments. Minneapolis, they are dismantling their police your departments. Former, your former hometown, the Bay, the Bay Area, Northern California, Oakland Unified School District completely cut their ties with the police department because they had their own yeah. police department within Oakland Unified School District. It's completely gone. I know. That's amazing. So many cities, Minneapolis cut their ties mm -hmm. with their department mm -hmm. too. Like it's 
this has been jaw-dropping, the way in which, I mean, as people are saying, like, it seems different because so many people are taking to the streets. It's not just people of color. It's not just black folks. It's white folks. It's, you know, multi-generational. Like, the, the protests, even in the face of pandemic, has been enormous. Um, and maybe it is because we as individuals are searching for some way in which to express a community, to, like, see a community across differences of various kinds, um, right, and build what is so visibly and viscerally lacking in this time of quarantine. And so that has been amazing to me. I mean, what brings it up at, at each time we have these conversations has been um, some terrible murder at the hands of the police of a Black man or woman or non-binary person or transgender person, right? Mm -hmm. that, has, that has brought it up and that is you know, in, as it is in every case, and as it is in all the thousands of cases that we don't see, that don't capture national headlines, right? That is a tragedy. But what has been just shocking has been the way in which real conversations and real, in fact, actions have happened as a result of this. Um, and in the same way, I mean, it seems possible, right? Uh, in a way that we haven't seen before. I mean, some kind of more nationalized healthcare seems like it's going to come out of God willing a Biden presidency, um, right? That was something that every single candidate talked about in the last round. Yeah. And it seems like something that will take, there's going to be some kind of medical, some kind of healthcare reform that happens that will hopefully be more substantive even than the ACA. So, um, I mean, so I think, that is something like this has been insane. It's been tragic. 150,000 Americans have died far more so far across the uh, so far. And of course, more have died around the world and more sick and in ways that we probably won't even understand for decades. Right. So obviously this is, I mean, this is a time of tragedy. It's, this is just a tragic time, but at the same time, I mean, I mean, I hope this would be something that Eleanor would get out of it. All of this, it can, this can be changed. These are tragic things, but these are the results of choices, as you were saying, right? Choices that are made and can therefore be unmade or rectified or addressed in some way. And so, um, like, one of the kind of, you know, lights on the horizon is that maybe those things, some of those things will change. Um, and people have been taking steps to change them. And, and maybe if we continue to put pressure, if we continue to act um, and we continue to protest, maybe these things actually will change. What's on the cover then? It can be better. What, what's the visual? Um, God. Maybe the marches with masks. Mm -hmm. Because all of that signals kind of care for other people. Um, and care for other people. <laughs> They yeah. both kind of show the same thing, both marching yeah, and masks. that's what it's going to take. Right. Both of them are signaling caring for other people, and that's what, it, that's what it's taking. That's what it's going to take. Not just caring for yourself, not just caring for your family, but caring for other people. You've been listening to Been There, Done That, your pandemic survival podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Perez. Stay well and stay human. <laughs>